0: Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. And listeners, today we have a conversation with Professor Jim Dieter that I have been looking forward to. He just had a book released called Choosing Courage, The Everyday Guide to Being Brave at Work. So let me just share with you a little bit about Jim. Jim. He is the professor at the University of Virginia's Darden School of Business and the Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy. His research focuses on workplace courage, ethical decision-making, and leadership. I think you know that I typically Google – all of our guests before they come on. And I try to read other things they've written, not just their book, and learn more about them. And when I Googled Jim, a slew of articles came up, both at some of the top academic management journals as well as those professional journals, the ones that those of us who are not academicians but are leaders and managers often read, like the Harvard Business Review and the Sloan Management Review. His recent book, Choosing Courage, is incredible in part because it really inspires people to move beyond that just appreciating others' courage. Oh, yeah, I really like the way that person stood up and preparing ourselves to not just courageously but also competently exhibit that behavior in our own life. Jim thrives on empowering people to have difficult conversations, engaging rather than avoiding those challenging situations so that we can make both our own lives and the world a better place. Jim, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. And and thank you for that lovely introduction. I feel like uh, I can only disappoint from that high starting point.
0: Well, having having read a number of your articles and your book, I feel pretty confident you're not going to disappoint. But one of the things I am curious about: How did this interest you as your academic and professional focus? So
1: it's a it's a very long story, and let me let me try to be brief uh, in telling it. When I went to graduate school, I did my dissertation. I actually sort of stumbled into the topic of why people speak up or not at work. But for twenty years now, it's it's been what I've been working on. uh, For about 10 or so years, I studied more specifically why people are afraid uh, to speak up at work or why they think it's futile. And then that morphed into more broadly, um, different kinds of workplace courage acts beyond just sort of direct uh, speaking up episodes. And, you know, I've come to realize is there's really, there are really two sort of tracks to um, how I got there. One is that, you know, academically, my dissertation was on the factors that explain why people do or don't speak up in organizations. And, you know, what was pretty clear 20 years ago now was when people think it's safe, they generally do speak up. When they think it's unsafe, they generally don't. They choose silence. But there was this small group of folks who said in my interviews with them, no, it's actually not safe. I don't think it's safe, but I do it anyway, or someone else does it anyway. And I had noted those way back then as, This seems to be workplace courage. And I set that aside for a long time, but it sort of kept percolating for me. And then on the teaching side, I was teaching uh, leadership courses to uh, exec MBA students, MBA students at Cornell. And year after year, I would finish my courses with a little shtick about, you know, like, Look, we've learned a lot of tools and I hope they're useful. But the reality is I don't think I don't think how many tools you have in the toolkit matters. I think what matters is whether when the critical moments arise, you will use those tools, whether you will have the courage to do what you know is right. And that so resonated with people. You know, I would sort of finish the course with like a three-minute thing on that but on the sort of post course evaluation it was the number one thing students said we should have had a whole module on that we should have had a whole course on that that's what we need and so after you know a few years those two sort of the lingering sense from my research and this sort of desperate calling for it from practice led me to say you know it's t- it's time i didn't realize this for some number of years but more recently it's also become clear to me that in a lot of ways, it defines the story of my own life. Uh, when I was four, my parents divorced. We were we were poor. I grew up in low income housing for a number of years, and I think you know now, looking back with an adult's understanding, I see that there were lots of choices both my mom made and that I had to make if we weren't going to have our life become one of sort of chronic poverty and chronic sort of lack of control and chronic lack of agency and. I joke now because it's so antithetical to everything I believe. But when I was growing up, I was a fan of the show Dallas and I wanted to be J.R. Ewing. And now, of course, I realize, oh, my God, that guy was a horrible human being. Uh, But what did he have? He had control. He had power. He could make happen what he wanted to have happen. And, you know, as a poor kid, I so wanted control. I so wanted agency and and I actually think probably that that deep longing to have control, to be the pilot of my own life, to not let my circumstances dictate who I would be or what I would become, I actually think that is what sustains me every day to keep studying these incredibly special people who refuse to just be conformists, who refuse to just go along to get along. Uh, they inspire me like they inspire everybody else, but I think for me, there's a real personal sense of... This is the only way we make a difference.
0: That's such a unique way to approach the academic work and the practical work that you're doing, because really choosing courage at work really is about increasing your agency and your control.
1: Yeah, it it totally is. I mean, you know, if we go back to you know, the famous Milgram experience, the obedience to authority studies that Milgram did in the, you know, the 50s, 60s and the early 70s you know, he talked about when people sort of pull that lever and, you know, shock these supposed learners who have made mistakes, what they're doing, he said, is they're entering into the agentic shift. In other words, they let go of their own agency to decide and act on what is right or wrong. And they sort of give that agency to the experimenter who's the authority figure. Uh, and, And so in Milgram's work on obedience, this notion of, disregarding um, our agency was central. And the truth is, as I have gone forward you know, in the study of courage, and then for example, as I contemplate my next book, which perhaps we'll talk about, uh, what I am more and more clear is how much sort of tragedy happens. And I don't mean just all the awful things that happen out in the world because of a lack of courage, but how much we sort of lose our authenticity, our self-respect. We become, you know, Thoreau's like, you know, people of quiet desperation because of that agentic shift, because we stop choosing to be responsible for ourselves. And, you know, I think at this point, if my mission is anything in particular, it's that it's, it's trying to help people say, do not let anybody else decide for you what to do or to be with your life.
0: Yeah. And it is, I think also so unique before we hit the record button, I was sharing with you that, you know, I've, I've been involved in a lot of hiring over the last, gosh, several decades. And again and again, I will see people who are interested in really transitioning from the for-profit or the government sector into the nonprofit sector. And they kind of have this idealized concept of what the nonprofit sector is going to be like. But in reality, that need for courage is still also so present when you're employed in the nonprofit sector, whether we're talking about discrimination, sexual harassment, fraud, toxic organization, toxic leadership, whatever it might, bad management, whatever it might be, we see that just as much in the nonprofit sector as the for-profit
1: oh, no question. And you know, as you know in the book, I talk about the different types of fears that hold people back. and you know, let's say that the most common, unless you know you're a firefighter or you know a police officer, the most common types are economic or career risk. Right? I don't want to get fired. I don't want to get blackballed. I don't want to get held back. Um, the second type is is social risk. I don't want to lose my friends. I don't want to be isolated. I don't want to be ostracized. And the third type is psychological. Right? I don't want to feel stupid. I don't want to get so out of my comfort zone that I'm embarrassed or look like a doofus. And you know, what I have seen over the years is that there's no organizational domain or no sector where these three don't play some role. What shifts some is, let's say, the potency relative to one another. So simple example would be if you do, you know, exec adder consulting with banks, for profit banks, this I don't want to get fired, held back, you know, lose my big bonus is pretty dominant. If you switch to credit unions, which engage in a vast majority of the same actual work behavior, right? Their, their task is similar, uh, but they are nonprofit. They're all they're often very sort of family focused. People stay there forever. They're local community based. Uh, there, people don't speak up with any more frequency about all these kinds of problems and issues. When you ask them why, though. They say, because I don't want to get kicked out of the family, it's too uncomfortable. It'd be too hard to, you know, confront the equivalent of, you know, crazy Uncle Charlie. And so, you know, what I see is that the fear of doing the right thing is pervasive. Perhaps the underlying basis of the fear shifts across different settings.
0: Yeah, yeah. One of the things I found so powerful is in your book, you talk about, that there's a way to overcome that, and and you talk about the courage ladder so that people can move past that fear, whatever fear it might be that that's keeping them from speaking up.
1: Yeah, and the courage ladder is—I mean, it's it's just a very simple visual concept. But I I have found, it, and you know, thousands of people have found it's a very helpful concept. Is simply a notion of saying, you know, unless you're very abnormal, you know, like literally have some kind of mental health issue, you have things you fear. That that's part of being a human being. And one of the reasons people don't sort of get to work tackling their fears and and developing the skills they need to do that successfully is they don't sort of stage their growth efforts appropriately. And, you know, before I say more about that in in the context of a a specific courage ladder or work courage ladder, like, let me just give the analogy, you know, if you, if you decided, if you weren't a runner and you decided like, okay, I'm going to run a 10k, well, What's the dumbest thing you could do? The dumbest thing you could do is, you know, put your shoes on and get out of the house and like run as fast as you can for as long as you can. What's gonna happen? <laughs> you know, you're you're either gonna have a heart attack or you're gonna be so sore that you're you're gonna throw in the towel literally after one training session and be like, that was crazy. I can't do that. And the same is true in all skill-building domains. And the truth is, courageous acts require skill if you're gonna actually achieve something. And so The idea of a courage ladder is simple. You know, just like if you wanted to run that 10K, the smart way to do it would be to say, I'm going to start with 15 to 20 minutes where 85% of that's going to be walking and there's going to be just, you know, a couple minutes of the slowest jog I can imagine. And I'm going to do that for three days and then I'm going to build, right? And the idea of a courage ladder is the same. So if if you know there's this big, bolder issue that you would put at the top of your courage ladder, like I just can't imagine doing this, psychologists talk about subjective units of distress, a sud scale. That's a 10 for you. Okay, fine. Don't start there. Because you also have some behaviors that are sevens or fives or threes or twos. Get them on your courage ladder and start there. Because just like that 20-minute mostly walk session will leave you feeling ready and even perhaps a little motivated to go tomorrow, tackling that one or two on the sud scale courage ladder item is likely to go well enough, allow you to, you know, be stressed but have some practice, and then learn. Like, hey, it wasn't pleasant or I didn't crush it, but I'm fine. I'm fine, and I'm proud of what I did. So maybe I'll, you know, I'll be ready next week or tomorrow for that two or that three item. And so the idea of a courage letter is really just to say, you know, first of all, you have to get clarity on what things you you believe you should be doing, you would like to be doing and aren't, and it just helps you to do that visually. But then the, the ordering of them and the starting from the bottom rung is a really productive, simple way to think about the likelihood of achieving your ultimate goals.
0: One of the things that I was also really struck by is that this need for courage in our workplace is not just courage about challenging up, it's also courage to challenge our peers and to challenge those people who report to us.
1: Yeah, and others. Yeah, it takes courage to challenge bosses or board members because they have sort of that career economic power over us. When you talk about, you know, confronting peers who, you know, are are making inappropriate comments, microaggressions, um, are just not being productive, are not meeting shared goals and commitments. There, right, there's not an economic career risk. There's a social risk. They won't like you, they'll cut you out, they'll stop inviting you to things. Subordinates similarly, right? There's that social risk. And the truth is, right, like if you think about in the nonprofit space, you have to add to that set of stakeholders, not just peers, subordinate, you have to add things like wealthy donors, board members, certain community stakeholders, right, who present different risks. Like we, we need these people for various reasons, right? We either need them to actually help us or we need them to not be resistors to what we're trying to do. And so, what do you do? And it turns out, right, again, this is not, not entirely different from the for-profit sector where, you know, in a lot of my work, what shows up on a lot of courage ladders and in a lot of discussions is, you know, we have clients who treat our staff abusively or, you know, talk inappropriately to our female client account holders or VPs, you know, all sorts of inappropriate behavior from clients. And they face the similar choice. Are we going to stand up for our values and risk an important source of financial or other support or not. And so, you know, I I think in the nonprofit space, there's these internal different sources, different targets that can be really challenging, risky, but there are also these other broader stakeholder groups too that I'm sure many nonprofit leaders would say, yeah, those are actually the biggest ones of all.
0: I'm so glad that you pointed out that we've also got to have courage with our donors and our funders. I can, not a lot, but over the last 30 years, I can think of a few instances where I've had to have some tough conversations with major donors and say, yeah, I don't, you can't treat me that way. Or, or you, you know, you can't expect that just because you give us X amount, we're going to do Y for you.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, simply the courage, right? There's like the straight up, like abusive, inappropriate, nonsensical stuff. But also, there's just a lot of, also unacceptable but you know lower threshold stuff of yeah i gave you money so you know implicitly or explicitly i think i'm going to sort of dictate what you're going to do with that money and how you're going to do it and who else you and you know which of my nephews or sons or daughters or whatever you're going to put on my uh, on your staff and all that kind of stuff that we know happens
0: right and so one of the things i also want us to have a little bit of a conversation about is how to speak up effectively because, you know, like th- there are ways that we can speak up that will um, help us move and move the situation forward and resolve it. And there's ways that we can speak up that actually kind of become obstacles to resolving it.
1: Yeah, it, it's exactly right. I mean, I make the distinction between say and I joke that, you know, the, my book is called Choosing Courage, but it it really should have been called Choosing Competent Courage because there are some instances, right, where if you say, well, what was your goal? All right. You just kind of, you know, in a meeting, you just let it go. You let it rip. You were courageous. I say like, well, what was your goal? Now, there are some instances where the goal is consequences be damned. I was going to stand up for a principal, a person, uh, myself. And, and really like the goal, if you will, was the act of defiance or the act of defense but in most cases i think in organizational contexts people would like to achieve that and something broader like if you're speaking up about inequitable like pay inequity for example you don't want to just make your last stand before getting fired about an inequitable treatment of a particular you know female colleague you want pay inequity fixed and so in that case it's not just about like taking your last stand. It's about actually getting people to hear you and do something about it. And that's where the confidence comes in. And that's again where I think going back to the courage ladder is one of the first things we have to do is we have to let go of some myths about courage. And we've built a ton of them. We've built a myth that there are these sort of heroic personality types for whom this just sort of comes naturally and is easy. And, you know, they, they don't have to practice, they don't have to work hard at it, they're not afraid. All of that is untrue. If you study all, you know, look at the great John Lewis. John Lewis has written about, had talked about before we went into all these different, you know, non resistance, very dangerous situations. We practiced for months. We role played. We imagined every possible scenario or outcome that could come our way and we dealt with it over and over and over. And so, you know, I think we have to let go of this myth that some of us are just born ready or are born naturals. That's actually, there's no research I'm aware of, including my own, that actually suggests that's true. There's no courageous personality. Um, it's a choice and it's a choice to be, to do enough practice that we get more competent, that we get more skilled. You know, we can we talk about this for five hours. But we don't have five hours. So let me, let me give you a meta idea or a listeners, a meta strategy about that and give you a couple examples. I think the highest level way to think about it is that it's about how we frame what we say. Most of the time, it's not the actual content, right? I believe we should do X. Um, I believe we should invest in Y. I believe our focus needs to change to Z. It's not that. It's not the content itself that we get wrong. It's the framing of the message itself. Uh, And so classic example would be you might go in loaded for bear because you think um our organization needs to start doing this because it is consistent with who we are it fits our values it is culturally central to us and it's a great opportunity okay but somebody right your chief financial officer your your major donor turns out they don't have any issue with the content like the what you want to do but the thing is um they're not actually driven that much by value statements or cultural framing or opportunities. They've made all their money perhaps because they focused on threats they better respond to and uh, what, what effect it's going to have on some metric or bottom line. And so you don't get anywhere in that conversation, not because they were actually opposed to the issue, but because you went in and talked about culture and opportunities and what they needed to hear was about threats and, and, an important metric. And so, so much of competent courage or competent, frankly, conversation is engaging in like all of us talk the talk about empathy and perspective taking. But in conversation, what that really means is, did you get to know and bother focusing on framing things the way they want to hear it, the way they resonate? And a lot of that is you know, subtle choices, and it's what we do to have people trust us. I'll give you just two quick examples. Um, Catherine Gill was a great, a great, great executive leader at uh, Root Capital, a nonprofit that in agriculture and other sectors provided sort of meso-level loans in South America and Africa. And for a long time, Catherine was the only uh, female on the senior team. And she struggled with the idea that they were working very, very, very hard externally um, to do great work out in the world on behalf of women. Because, you know, something I didn't know before working with, with Catherine is, most of the world's farmers, you know far more than fifty percent are actually females. and so when you talk about whether they have access to sufficient capital to get through a season, a farming season, etc, you're actually talking about whether women of the world will have a shot at advancement and so they they had done a ton of stuff to be really good to women uh, out there. But she had this sort of nagging sense as the only female at the top that there were just ways in which, despite all the best intentions, the firm wasn't. Truly, an equitable place, a truly inclusive place uh, for women. And Catherine had, you know, women lining out, lining up outside her door to come to her and and say, you know, yeah, you know, okay, this is not fair. I didn't get this promotion because I'm a woman, or I I'm getting paid less because I'm a woman. And one of the things that Catherine did that was incredibly important is she said, I studied every issue before I went and immediately complained or immediately brought this up. I studied the issue incredibly carefully. I'd commission little mini studies to say, like, how long has this person been here relative to everybody else? What are their role relative to everybody else? And is there, in fact, a pay or promotion equity issue? And she said, one of the things that the senior team came to respect me for is that when the dog didn't bark on a particular complaint, I said it. You know, I would say to the women, I'm with you and I'll fight to the end with you. But first, the facts must actually support your claim. And then Catherine learned that essentially if everything she framed in her conversations with her male colleagues was, you know, you're bad, you're doing things purposefully, you don't care, or even just, um, hey, for for women to feel like they're doing better here, it's going to require that you, the men, lose something was not going to work. So she was very, very careful about win-loss framing. You know, I think all too often, unintentionally- When what we really want is growth and improvement for other people, which is not fixed or zero sum, right? Men don't inherently have to be treated worse (laughs) so that women can be treated fairly, right? But I think that often we use language that suggests the pie is fixed or the situation is zero sum. And so right off the bat, we create sort of a scarcity mindset or a defensive mindset or you're a bad person mindset. And, And she was just incredibly skillful. At what she called learning to, you know, figuratively and literally, like pull her chair over to the other side of the table. It helped them see, like, this is a we situation to address, not a me you. You know, another example. Uh, Tachi Yamada uh, was a great physician leader. He's been the chairman of R and D at uh, two of the world's fifteen biggest uh, pharmaceutical companies. Chairman of R and D at Claxo Smith Klein and at um, Takeda, the Japanese largest pharmaceutical company, but he also did a stint for a few years at the Gates Foundation, uh, their nonprofit. And he was the chief medical advisor, chief medical director. And when he got there, he uh, assumed you know one of the big programs they were running that he therefore sort of assumed the mantle for was called um, Great Challenges. You know and this was the the Gates money that was put into essentially folks being able to propose you know these 10, 15 million dollar projects to tackle the world's biggest issues. And his his quick conclusion was, we're trying to be super innovative, but in reality, like all the scientists getting this money are from MIT and Harvard, and they're using their like long standing labs to do it. And he said, no offense to any of them, but that's not like by definition, that's not as likely to lead to truly out of the box thinking. And so he realized what he wanted to do is shrink it from these smaller number of 10 or 15 million dollar grants to. A much, much bigger number of, you know, like million dollar max grants, $500,000 max grants, where you would give almost, you know, potentially crazy ideas a chance to flourish. I mean, these were things like putting airport scanner type machines, you know, those things we walked through in villages in Africa uh, to see if you could program them to actually detect uh, malaria symptoms uh, immediately for treatment. Things that, for example, might not work but if they did work would be stunningly valuable. Uh, And so he wanted to fund those. but he realized, look, I'm new here. If I go in and sort of right out of the gate, say, okay, we're done with grand challenges. I I don't think it's the most effective way to truly create transformative change for the world. He would have alienated all the people who had a large part of their identity tied up in that program already. So what he, what he do? He sort of brilliantly said, look, folks, this is a wonderful program and it's already paid such immense dividends. I want to help us take it to the next level. I suggest we relabel this program grand challenges explorations and we give even more grants and we give them to even wilder ideas so that we can do better work than we've even done so far. And so instead of, you know, alienating people who felt their baby had gotten killed. He literally said, "Let's make more babies, and let's do it together." Uh, and so, you know, again, there are so many communication tactics we could talk about if we had more time. So many things people can do to sort of establish both that they're caring and warm, and also competent. That sort of set the stage for these courageous acts to go well. And I know we don't have time for for any perhaps more of that, but I think it's really thinking about. This, this macro idea of framing and realizing that for every change you want to make, for every hard piece of feedback you have to give, there's another human being on the other side who has an identity tied up with that, who, who also thinks they're a smart, capable person and is, in a sense, just unconsciously waiting to be defensive when you point out what's wrong. And you have to help that person um, become okay with with where you want to go.
0: Mm. Jim, I, I love that. And that is probably such a good place for us to move over to the off-the-map question. So our friends who are listening to this can't see your backdrop because we don't really publish the video. But friends, there are probably, I'd guess, about 150 books on two shelves behind Jim. And, and I see a copy of his book. So I'm going to say, with the exception of the copy of your book, which of the other books on that shelf have you picked up the most, and why?
1: Wow, uh, that's a bit of a that's a bit of a trick question for me because I have uh, I'm, I'm fortunate that I have two home offices at home, and I actually have the <laughs> books that I pick up and look at a lot at home. Uh, these are the books that I think some students might eventually want to see. Uh, if I can just turn that question a, a little bit,
0: sure, uh, yeah.
1: Um, you know, i'm an avid reader i mean it's one of the benefits of it's one of the truly beautiful things about being an academic is you know in a lot of ways we get paid to keep learning to keep reading so i'll tell you about a couple of books i'm reading right now that are having a profound um, impact on me one is called 4000 weeks um, which you know you may have heard of but it's essentially it's written by a guy who was a productivity geek for a number of years And essentially realized, like, ah, the more productive I got, just the more work I ended up having to do. Like, I got to zero inbox, and then people wrote me in emails back faster. And so he sort he sort of eventually stumbled on this, you know, realization that we all have an infinite time on Earth. You know, if you live to eighty, it's about four thousand weeks. That's the point of his book. And then he said, when he put it that way, it becomes kind of stunningly and frighteningly short. Uh, And he said, what he realized is that actually, once you get clear about that, what you're clear about is that. There's an absolutely infinite number of things you'll never do. You you can. It doesn't matter how many times you clear out your inbox or how much you're faster than somebody else at work. There still will literally be infinity of unfinished business when you die. So uh, you better forget about this nonsensical productivity and doing everything everybody sends you and wants you to do. And you better start thinking about what is truly most important to mm-hmm. me to do and why. So I'm finding I'm finding that uh, profound. I'm I'm also called 40 million dollar slaves, which is a book by William Roden about the history of um, African-Americans in sports uh, in America. And, um, you know, I think the title is pretty self-explanatory. Right. You know, what he talks about is even where we've gotten today with you know incredible black participation and even black wealth in our major sports, you know football and basketball, but still the reality that the vast majority of uh, senior management and ownership is white and sort of the struggle involved in that. And I, I find that um, you know, sports in so many ways, whether you like sports or not, sports are a reflection of our society and of our psychology. And so I love that about that. And then just to quickly, I'll mention a third one. I'm also reading at the same time a book called Crimes of Conscience. That's the that book is the closest to my area of research. It's a beautifully written book uh, about a whole bunch of whistleblowers and the incredibly important things they've done. Um, and uh, he, the author does a, a really lovely job of explaining, sort of psychologically and sociologically, you know, why they face what they face. You know, you and I were talking a little bit before we came on about, you know, your longstanding interest in deviance. And, you know, one thing, therefore, I'm guessing, you know, is, well, on the one hand, we all say, ah, we need more moral rebels. We need more, you know, people who will whistleblow. We need more of these truth tellers. The tragedy is that while we all say that the research actually is clear, we don't like those people very much. And, uh, and then actually, when they get in trouble, which they usually do, we don't stand up for them. And. That's actually sort of, you know, the focus of my next book is why do we let ourselves off the hook um, when we witness something and we don't act or when somebody else does act and we don't stand with them? Like, why is that? Um, What's the psychology behind, on the one hand, knowing we should admire and do admire these people, but on the other hand, our utter unwillingness to stand with them. Uh, And his book talks a fair bit about that.
0: All right. So, first of all, thank you, Jim. You've just added three books to my reading list. While I'm not an academician, I love to read. My guilty pleasures, i read like 3 quarters of a book a week. So, um, so thank you. I appreciate that. And friends, let me just share with you if you want to figure out how to get a hold of Jim. I want to share two URLs with you. The first is JimDieter.com. While you're there, you can learn more about Jim's work. And this is the big deal. You can get free access to papers, to tools for self-improvement. And also at that website, you can click on the link for the Competent Courage Action Center. And at that center, you will get some incredible guides that will help you build your own courage muscle. Also, check out WorkplaceCAI.com. And CAI stands for the Courage Acts Index. So at WorkplaceCAI.com, you can compare your responses to questions about a number of workplace behaviors, often considered courageous, to those of all prior respondents. And you know, we all love those opportunities where we could see, okay, where do I fall on the bell curve? So if you're interested in that, make sure you go to WorkplaceCAI.com. And the last thing I want to make sure you think about, this is an incredible book, Choosing Courage, the Everyday Guide to Being Brave at Work. And you can order it from HBR, but if you want a discount, you can go to Amazon and you can actually order it for a little bit less at Amazon. So, of course, I'm going to recommend maybe you do that. Or if you do want to pay full price, you know, walk into your favorite brick and mortar bookstore and order it from them. So they make a little bit of money as well. Jim, thank you so much for coming on today. This has been an amazing conversation.
1: It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And good luck to everybody out there. The work you do is stunningly important and tragically undervalued and appreciated. So thank you all for what you do.
0: Thank you. and. Listeners, always remember, if you miss JimDieter.com or WorkplaceCAI.com, or you just don't remember it tomorrow and you really want to check it out, you can always go to SuccessfulNonprofits.com and click on the show notes for this episode. You will get all of the links that we've talked about. Additionally, if you liked this episode, if this episode made you step back and think about how you're exhibiting courage in your workplace, then I would suggest two more episodes. The first is The Lion in Front of You with Jessica Boroschuk, and that's episode 204. And the second is Surviving Conflict with Karen Festi. That's episode 232. And lastly, dear friends, I want to make sure that you know it means so much to me when you rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. So if you're already a subscriber, please take a minute, pick up your phone, just click on Successful Nonprofits in your streaming app of choice and rate it and maybe even write a few words of review. That, listeners, is our show for the week. I hope that you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive. And you know, I do this one every time. I don't love it, but the lawyers make me do it. I am not an accountant, nor am I an attorney. And guess what? Neither I nor the Goldmer Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. And do you know why? Because I'm not an accountant nor an attorney. If that's what you need, please, please don't ask for that advice on the subway. Don't reach out to a podcast to get that advice. Find a licensed, qualified professional who you can actually meet with, share your story and your information with, and get the counsel that you need. If you're not sure what type of a professional to reach out to or you just don't know anyone in your area, you can always reach out to me. And if I know someone, I am happy to make that connection.